0: At the far end of Islington Road in Newton, Massachusetts, lives a little girl near and dear to the neighborhood. Two-year-old Samantha Savitz is deaf, but boy, does she love to talk to anyone who knows sign language. Her parents, Raphael and Glenda. Yeah, she's super engaging. She wants to, you know, chat up with anybody.
1: Yeah, her whole personality changes when it's someone who can communicate with her.
0: Likewise, if someone can't, well, that makes Sam just a little sad. Her desire for engagement has been painfully obvious to everyone in the neighborhood. Whenever they see her on a walk or in her yard and Sam tries to be neighborly, they find themselves at a frustrating loss for words. I didn't know what to say back. Wouldn't you like to talk to her?
2: You know, basic conversation that one would have with a child.
0: Asking her about her day. And make her feel that she is part of the neighborhood. Just be her friend. Unfortunately, this isn't something you can solve with a casserole. You'd need the whole community to learn sign language, just for a little two-year-old girl. Can't expect neighbors to do that. You can only appreciate them when they do. On their own, Sam's neighbors got together, hired an instructor, and are now fully immersed in an American Sign Language class. The teacher, Reese McGovern, says this is remarkable. Because a lot of times, even the parents of deaf children don't bother to learn sign language. But here, Sam has a full community that's signing and communicating with her and her family, and it is a beautiful story. Andy says this level of inclusion will almost certainly guarantee a happier, more well-adjusted Sam, which is why her parents say there aren't words in any language to express their gratitude. It's, uh, yeah,
1: it's... It's really shocking and beautiful.
0: We are so fortunate. In fact, they say they're already seeing a difference in their daughter. You should see her when she comes in at the end of class. The first thing she says to us is, friend. I think your heart would melt just as mine did. Sometimes it feels like America is losing its sense of community. But then you hear about a place like this, where the village it takes to raise a child is alive and well And here to remind us that what makes a good neighborhood is nothing more than good neighbors. Steve Hartman, On the Road, in Newton, Massachusetts.
2: One day an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question. Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus replied, what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? The man answered, You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Right, Jesus told him. Do this, and you will live. The man wanted to justify his actions, so he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? It was a little over eight years ago, our daughter Saffron entered our lives. Saffron was born deaf and so for the first 18 months, we were working closely with doctors and audiologists to find out if maybe cochlear implants would be a possibility for her. Uh, When she was 18 months old, she went to the University of Iowa Children's Hospital and got bilateral uh, cochlear implants on on both ears. And that technology is just incredible and amazing and it's an absolute uh, blessing. And it's a blessing at a couple of different levels. The 18 months leading up to when she got her cochlear implants, our family had to learn sign language, and I was not a very good student. I could not get my hands to do the kinds of things that they're supposed to do in my fingers, and I couldn't get my brain to remember and, and make all those connections. And so when I watch a video like that, where a neighborhood decides we're going together, we're going to learn sign language, not for a family member, but just so we can love a little girl in our neighborhood. It, completely blows me away, and if I'm honest, it's a little convicting. Because if I was in that neighborhood, would I have signed up for those classes? And I think if I'm being honest, the answer would be no. And I'd have all kinds of reasons why I'm too busy, it's too time-consuming, it's too hard, cost is too great. Those are all really just excuses, though, aren't they? Ways for me to justify my actions starting a new message series today, working through the gospel of Luke. Over the next four weekends, we're going to look at four stories that Jesus tells. A couple of the stories are really familiar, like the one today, we're looking at the story of the Good Samaritan. Uh, Later on, we'll look at the story of the prodigal son, again, another familiar story. But a couple of the stories are not very familiar at all. Uh, The story that Jesus tells about the rich fool or the story he tells about the tax collector and the Pharisee. Every weekend as we dig into these stories of Jesus, the hope is we would be able to hold up a mirror and that these stories might be able to tell us something about ourselves. Where do we see ourselves in these stories? These stories are not just stories of 2,000 years ago. These are stories of us. What's Jesus trying to teach us? What's Jesus trying to say to us? In these stories. And I want to start with that verse that I just had up on the screen. This is the verse that leads Jesus into telling the story of the Good Samaritan, Luke 10, 29. It's on the screen. Let's read this out loud together. The man wanted to justify his actions. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? It's a great temptation for all of us, isn't it? To justify our actions. As we go through life, we figure out the way that we believe the world works, and so here's what I'm going to do, here's what I think, here's how I'm going to act and behave, because I think this is the right way to go. But of course not always are we going the right way, and, and so when we bump into those times when we're not actually doing the right thing, but we think we're doing the right thing, we do whatever we can do to justify our actions, at least I do. Have you noticed, More and more businesses now, when I go to pay my bill, they will ask me, do you want to round up to the next dollar and we can donate that difference to the charity of our choice? Have you seen this in different places where you go, business world, just me? Okay, good. (laughs) Uh, That's not just the places I'm going. So I'm not exactly sure what about this bothers me. But it bothers me, and I've been kind of paying attention to that. So this is just you know, one of the great blessings of being a preacher is you have to like, look at the things in your life that need some serious help. So you can be praying for me on this one. <laughs> why, why does this bother me? And I, I think it's really this. The, the way they train their employees to make the ask, they make the ask in a way that you look like a jerk if you say no. Do you want to support the Children's Miracle Network? No, not really. <laughs> Of course you want to help. So I feel like it's a no-win situation. So again, please be praying for me. I've been spending a lot of time thinking, is there a way, can I come up with a way to answer that doesn't make me look like a jerk if I say no? So here's one thought I had. What if I just started to say, oh, all of my charity dollars are already budgeted for the year like I'm so fiscally responsible, I would never think of even spending a penny on something that I hadn't planned for, right? Well, and so they're, if they're asking to, rate, to round up to the closest dollar, the most they're asking me to give is 99 cents, right? But apparently that is a, an affront to my budget. That is an affront to my frugality. And when I pay attention to what's going on inside me, I want to point fingers of blame at this employee who's asking me and who is the employee typically a teenager their first job ever they're manning the drive-through at panda express or whatever they're just doing what their boss has asked them to do and i'm upset at them for making me feel bad maybe the simple truth is this i want to justify my actions i want to appear to be charitable even when i have no intention of being charitable Maybe for me, the cost of compassion, even if it's just 99 cents, the cost of compassion is just too high. I spent a lot of time this week watching these segments that Steve Hartman produces uh, for CBS News. They're called On the Road. Every Friday night, the very last segment of the CBS Evening News, Steve Hartman's going around all over this country looking for feel-good stories, and he finds a lot of them. People doing really, really, really cool and good things. And almost always, almost always, these are stories of you know, second chances, stories of grace. Uh, Often there are stories where this is how do we come together and be more unified in a divisive world. And always these are stories of love in action. So the first one we watched in Massachusetts, a, a neighborhood that's learning sign language, here's one from North Carolina where a judge gives kind of an interesting sentence. Take a look.
0: Inside the county courthouse in Fayetteville, North Carolina, Judge Lou Oliveira made headlines with an unusual decision. You may be A few years ago, Joe Cerna was arrested for drunk driving. As part of his probation, he wasn't allowed to drink. So when he lied about a recent urine test, the judge felt he had no choice.
2: I gave Joe a night in jail because he had to be held accountable. It was just one night.
0: But as he entered the cell, Joe says he knew it would be one of the longest nights of his life. When I walked into the jail cell and they closed the door
3: behind me, I started feeling this um, anxiety. It came back? It came back, a flashback.
0: Retired Army Sergeant First Class Joe Cerna did three tours in Afghanistan and has two Purple Hearts to show for it. The Green Beret survived an IED and a suicide bomber. But he says his scariest moment was the night he was riding in a truck with three other soldiers.
3: What happened? We were, we were following the, the creek, and uh, the road gave way. And um, the vehicle went into
0: the creek. Trucks started filling with water? Yeah. All hope was lost. Trapped and unable to move, Joe felt the water rising, past his legs, then waist and neck, until finally it stopped at his chin. How many guys got out of that truck? Alive? Yeah. Just me.
1: I was a sole survivor.
0: Joe says it still haunts him. So I suffer from PTSD. Among his issues? A fear of being in small, cramped places. I knew what Joe was going through, and I knew
2: Joe's history. And he had to be held accountable, but I just felt I had to go with him. I felt I had to go with him.
0: And so, a few minutes after Joe was locked up, Judge Lou Oliveira surprised the man he sent to jail by joining him for the entire night.
2: We ate meatloaf, and uh, we talked about a lot of things. We talked
3: about our families.
0: And the walls got further apart?
3: The walls just got, they, they, they didn't exist anymore. He brought me back to North Carolina from being in a truck in Afghanistan.
0: That meant so much to me, sir. This past week, Joe promised the judge no more mess-ups. I don't want to let you down, ever. ever. It's not how law and order usually works. But sometimes, jail is not what a man needs. Sometimes, the best sentence is compassion. Thank you for breathing me.
2: There was a time on Thursday when I was putting my message together, I was thinking, those segments are about three minutes long, how about we just do like 10 of them and then I'll read through the story of the Good Samaritan and <laughs> we'll call it good, you know, go do that. I, I don't know what happens inside you as you watch videos like that, but a couple of things are happening kind of simultaneously inside of me. One is, I think if we asked this question, would you like love to be the motivating force in this world, I'm guessing most of us in this room would say, yeah, absolutely. That's the kind of world we want. We want to live in a world where neighborhoods learn sign language so they can love a little neighbor girl. We want to live in a world where judges are both just and compassionate. And I watch those and I find myself, how can I live more and more like that all the time? In a way where love is leading me, love is motivating me in my decisions, in my actions, in my relationships. And then really close, either behind that first impulse or maybe even right alongside that first impulse, there's another impulse. And that is, if I were to go that direction, if I really were to choose to love like that, what's it going to cost me? What might it actually mean for my life? What, what might love require Of me. When I read this story of the Good Samaritan, when this teacher of religious law comes to Jesus with a question, What must I do to inherit eternal life? It's clear this teacher believes in the law of love. His understanding of the scriptures is that it points us to love of God and love of neighbor. He wants, he likes this idea of the law of love. At the same time, you see this other impulse at work in the teacher as he asks a follow-up question who is my neighbor it's like you can see the wheels kind of spinning in his head and it's almost like he's saying isn't there a law of limits to Jesus like as I'm going around loving my neighbor doesn't there reach a point where the cost of loving my neighbor just gets too high and now I'm no longer required to do that isn't there a law of limits as well And so it seems to me part of the reason Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan is to teach that man, but also to teach us. No, no, there's no limit. There's never a point where the cost of compassion is so high that you no longer have to love your neighbor. Let's read the story. This is what Jesus says, the story he tells in response to this question, who's my neighbor? A Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho. He was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him up, and left him half dead beside the road. By chance, a priest came along. But when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. A temple assistant walked over and looked at him lying there, but he also passed by on the other side. As we look at these stories of Jesus over the month of October, it's going to be important for us to pay attention, what are the details that Jesus includes in the story, and why does he include these particular details? So part of the details that Jesus makes sure that we hear as he's telling the story, the first two people who come across the guy who's been beaten and left for dead beside uh, the road, the first two people are religious dudes. These are people who know the law and the prophets. People who know the right way to live, the right way to act. They know the law of love. And Jesus makes sure to point out, they actually, as they observe the situation, as they see what's happening, as they see the need and see the hurt, instead of choosing to move in the direction of love, Jesus makes sure we know they move in the opposite direction. They move away from love. They pass by all On the other side, they get as far away as they can from the person who's in need of help. Interestingly, Jesus doesn't tell us why they do this. And so we're kind of left to guess, left to imagine. And there's all sorts of things that we can come up with. Maybe as they looked at this man, they just thought, there's absolutely nothing I can do to help anyway. Maybe they were just overwhelmed by what they saw. Maybe they're in a hurry on their way to some important meeting and stopping to help. They just don't have time in their schedule for that. Maybe they've been hardened by the world that they find themselves living in. We touched on it last week a little bit. There's this dividing wall of hostility that existed in Jesus' day between Jews and Gentiles. And this wall of hostility, part of it is a religious wall, sure, but it's also an ethnic wall. It is a racial wall. And so what Jesus says next as he continues the story would have been very offensive to some of the people listening to him. It certainly would have been shocking to the people listening to Jesus tell this story. Then a despised Samaritan came along. And when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. Then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn where he took care of him. The next day, he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, take care of this man. If his bills run higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. Again, pay close attention to the details that Jesus includes in the story. He takes him to an inn. He gives the innkeeper money. He says to the innkeeper, if the bill is actually higher than this, I will pay you the next time that I am here. Why does Jesus include these details about cost, about monetary expense? Is it possible Jesus knows the human heart so well that Jesus knows there does come a point that we all have our limits? When the cost of compassion goes beyond that point, our tendency is to move away from love, move away from help, move away from compassion. I mean, it's one thing for us to talk idealistically about Letting love be the motivating force in our world. It's one thing for us to talk with great sentiment about, don't we want to be great neighbors? And don't we want to lead with love? But when we put it into practice, when we have to actually talk about what it would mean for us, what it would cost us, there is a cost. It could be a relational cost. It could be an emotional cost. It could be a financial cost. But there's always a cost to being good Samaritans and to loving our neighbors. If we start engaging with people who are wounded, start working with people who are hurting, it gets messy. It's going to impact our schedule. It will be inconvenient. There are people who've spent a lot of time, kind of sociologists, examining American society over the last several decades, and one of the things that they are discovering is it seems like the direction America is going, we seem to have chosen love of convenience over love of neighbor. We've chosen love of convenience over love of neighbor, and it plays out in all sorts of ways. One of the ways it plays out is we love our you know, three-car, four-car garages at the front of our house so that very conveniently we can drive home from work, push a button in our vehicle, drive into our home, push the button again, and close off the outside world. It's very convenient if it's snowing or icing or raining or too hot or too cold or whatever it might be, but the other thing that happens is it makes it very easy for us to avoid actually engaging with our neighbors. So I'm super excited. There's uh, three groups of young adults in our church this fall who are meeting all over Ankeny, and they're studying a book called The Art of Neighboring. Because if this is the great commandment, love God and love your neighbor, maybe we should equip this church to do that, to carry out the words of Jesus, the commands of Jesus to love our neighbor. What does that actually look like? in our current American context. Do we know our neighbors? Do we even know our names? Do we know their needs and their hurts? What does it look like for us to love our neighbor? The ones closest by, absolutely, but make no doubt about it, Jesus says our neighbor is actually the whole world. These first two guys, they pass by on the opposite side of the road. Jesus doesn't tell us why, Preachers have used their imagination to guess, including a great preacher like Martin Luther King Jr. Did you know the last speech Martin Luther King Jr. gave before he was killed, he references the story of the Good Samaritan. He's in Memphis, Tennessee. There is a strike by sanitation workers in Memphis because uh, at the time the conditions were so terrible that the workers were actually getting hurt. Some of them were dying because of these conditions that were just so awful. And so they go on strike to try to get better working conditions. And Martin Luther King shows up to try to rally support for people to help make this happen. And he says, part of the reason we're doing this, it's actually a way of loving our neighbor. And so I was looking for video footage of King giving this uh, speech. And I found a little bit of it. Most people recognize this speech by a different name. Uh, It's his, I've been to the mountaintop speech. It's the final speech that he gives. He's killed the next day. He ends it by saying, I've been to the mountaintop. And so I'm looking for video footage. Couldn't find a whole lot. Found some, but not the part that includes the Good Samaritan. There's a whole lot of audio uh, of his speech. And you can listen to the whole thing if you'd like to. It's pretty easy to find. But while I was looking for video footage, I found another film. He gives the speech one day. He's killed the next day. And the day after he is killed, there's this film that I'm going to show you from an elementary school in Columbus, Ohio, in a predominantly black neighborhood, and we're going to mute the volume on that film, and we're just going to play Martin Luther King Jr.'s words on top of it, which will be really like hard for you to follow if you're 30 years or older, but if you're under 30, it'd be a piece of cake. But So pick one. You know Which one do you want to listen to? Which one do you want to watch? But pay attention to just the power of the real life stuff that happens as we try to follow Jesus and take him at his word.
1: Let us develop a kind of dangerous unselfishness. One day, a man came to Jesus, and he wanted to raise some questions about some vital matters of life. At points, he wanted to trick Jesus and show him that he knew a little more than Jesus knew and throw him off base. Now that question could have easily ended up in a philosophical and theological debate. But Jesus immediately pulled that question from midair and placed it on a dangerous curve between Jerusalem and Jericho. He talked about a certain man who fell among thieves, you remember that a Levite, and a priest passed by on the other side, they didn't stop to help him, finally a man of another race came by, he got down from his beast, decided not to be compassionate by proxy, but he got down with him, administered first aid, and helped the man in need. Jesus ended up saying, this was the good man, this was the great man. Because he had the capacity to project the eye into the vow and to be concerned about his brother. Now you know we use our imagination a great deal to try to determine why the priest and the Levite didn't stop. The times we say they were busy going to a church meeting, an ecclesiastical gathering and they had to get on down to Jerusalem so they wouldn't be late for their meeting. At other times, we would speculate that there was a religious law that one who was engaged in religious ceremonial was not to touch a human body 24 hours before the ceremony. And every now and then we begin to wonder whether maybe they were not going down to Jerusalem, or down to Jericho rather, to organize a Jericho Road Improvement Association. That's a possibility. Maybe they felt that it was better to deal with the problem from the causal route rather than to get bogged down with an individual effect. But I'm going to tell you what my imagination tells me. It's possible that those men were afraid. You see, the Jericho Road is a dangerous road. I remember when Mrs. King and I were first in Jerusalem. We rented a car and drove from Jerusalem down to Jericho. And as soon as we got on that road, I said to my wife, I can see why Jesus used this as the setting for his parable. It's a winding, meandering road. It's really conducive for ambushing. You start out in Jerusalem, which is about 1,200 miles, or rather 1,200 feet above sea level. And by the time you get down to Jericho, 15 or 20 minutes later, You are about 2,200 feet below sea level. That's a dangerous road. In the days of Jesus, it came to be known as the Bloody Path. You know it's possible that the priest and the Levite looked over that man on the ground and wondered if the robbers were still around. Or it's possible that they felt that the man on the ground was merely faking And he was acting like he had been robbed and hurt in order to seize them over there, lure them there for quick and easy seizure. And so the first question that the priest asked, the first question that the Levite asked was, if I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? But then the Good Samaritan came by and he reversed the question. If I do not stop to help this man, what will happen to him? Well, he's gone now, but we're still here. What do you think
0: that, that we should do? How should
1: we treat other people?
2: Martin Luther King Jr. says this parable, this story of the Good Samaritan, it's really about two different ways of looking at the world and, and thinking about life the first two men in the story kind of represent this first question what will it cost me if I do what will it cost me if I stop, what will it cost me if I help, what will it cost me if I love and Martin Luther King says it's the wrong question There's a better question that Jesus is trying to get us to ask what will it cost my neighbor if I don't so maybe this would be a good time for us to just stop and think about who are those people in our life, who are Who's the neighbor that we're having a difficult time loving these days? And would we be willing to ask God to give us whatever it is we need so that we can stop moving away from that neighbor, away from that person who is difficult to love, and instead start moving toward them? To offer help, to offer hope, to offer compassion, to love them in Jesus' name. I mean, What if we started to take Jesus at his word? He says the entire law and the prophets, the whole Bible, can be summed up in these two commands. Love God and love your neighbor. What if we led a movement of that kind of love in our marriages, in our families, in our schools, in our church, in our community, in our neighborhood, in the places where we work? How might that actually change this world? About 800 years ago, a guy named Thomas Aquinas was writing really wise things about what does it mean what does it look like to be followers of Jesus and if love is the the motivating force what does it really mean to love the way Jesus calls us to love and Aquinas writes to love is to will the good of the other to love is to will the good of the other this is a real important check for me maybe for you too when I'm thinking about the people in my life who are hard to love this kind of brings it home. Like if someone said, Scott, that person, do you want bad things to happen in their life? No, of course not. I don't want bad things to happen. Okay. Are you hoping for good things? Are you wishing for good things to happen in their life? Okay. That's one thing. Are you willing they're good? Like that's more than hoping. That's more than wishing. That is acting. That is moving. That is working toward bringing about more good in their life. And I'm guessing that most of us, if we really start talking about, thinking about that person in our life who is not easy to love, and we said, are you willing to move in the direction of them and work and act toward their good, we would say, "That's eh, pushing my limits. Let somebody else do that. That's not for me. And I wonder, I wonder if that's why what Brant John did this week was so amazing and shocking and surprising to so many people. A little over a year ago, Botham John was killed in his apartment. Last couple of weeks, there was a trial, and the woman who shot him was convicted of murder. She was sentenced, and following the sentencing, there was an opportunity for victim impact statements. People, friends, family members, opportunity to take the stand and talk about how this death has impacted their life in the last year. And 18-year-old younger brother of the man who was killed takes the stand. And as you watch this, keep in the back of your head, what does it look like to love our neighbor? What does it look like to will the good of the other? Take a look.
3: I see. I, I personally want the best for you. And I, I wasn't going to ever say this in front of my family or anyone, but I don't even want you to go to jail. I want the best for you. Because I know that's what that's exactly what both of them would want you to do. And the best would be give your life to Christ. That's, I'm not gonna say anything else. I think giving your life to Christ would be the best thing that both of them would want you to do. Again, I love you as a person. And I don't wish anything bad on you. I don't know if this is possible, but can can I give her a hug, please? Please?
2: yes as I was watching the news coverage of this it was Kind of amazing to me, they started calling it the hug scene around the world. And seasoned media members, journalists, were trying to hold it together as they would say, I've never seen anything like this in all my years. To love is to will the good of the other. Best thing you could do is to give your life to Christ. And when we give our life to Christ, it it means it's going to lead to forgiveness, absolutely. But that's not the only thing it means. It also means it's going to lead to justice. Martin Luther King Jr. said, yeah, great. First two guys go by, we don't want to be like that. We want to be more like the good Samaritan. But he goes on to say, think bigger than that. Wouldn't it be great to live in a world, wouldn't it be great to be a part of a neighborhood, a society where people aren't beaten and left for dead on the side of the road? I was on my social media pages last night and I saw a story come across one of the key witnesses in that trial was gunned down in the streets of Dallas. What does that mean? How how do we work for more justice and more peace and a more perfect union? What does love require of us? Are we willing to do whatever it costs as we follow after Jesus? You know, the story of the Good Samaritan is really more the story of God than it is the story of us. Jesus is the cosmic Samaritan takes a look at this bloodied world and Jesus doesn't say "Ah, there's a limit to what I'm willing to do to help and to love he says no I will cross over I'll go from heaven to earth Martin Luther King said that road from Jerusalem to Jericho was called the bloody pass and Jesus picks up his cross and he walks the bloody pass to the cross to show us how expensive love is to show us just how much it costs to love the way Jesus is calling us to love. We remember that love when we come to the Lord's table. We remember it was the night he was betrayed. He took some bread. He blessed it. He broke it. He gave it to his disciples. And he said, take and eat. This is my body given for you. Eat this and remember me when you eat it. Later on in the meal, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, poured out for you and for all people for the forgiveness of your sins. Drink this and remember me when you drink it. Let's stand and let's pray together the prayer Jesus taught his followers to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation